afternoon. My name is Brian Parks, and I serve as the senior pastor here at Covenant Hope Church. And before I begin into the sermon, I just wanted to point out uh, occasionally, so I'll do it this afternoon, that on the inside page of your bulletin on page 10, in the sermon notes part, there is a QR code there. And so if you are someone who maybe struggles with my accent, understanding what I'm saying, maybe following along, English isn't your first language, uh, you can download the sermon manuscript every week and follow along with that. In the early days before the UAE was a country and in the decade just before the Union of the Emirates took place, getting from one place to another was much more of an adventure than it is today. Traveling from Dubai to Alain takes an hour and a half at most these days. In the 50s, even up through the 70s, it would take six to eight hours. You literally were having to dune bash your way all the way to Alain and back. Some would drive from Alain almost all the way to Abu Dhabi just so that they could drive the rest of the way north through wide level salt flats that were along the coast. If you wanted to get to Abu Dhabi from Dubai, you would drive along the beach and plan to get near Abu Dhabi, hopefully by low tide, because Abu Dhabi is an island and there were no bridges. And so you had to wait for low tide to drive across. Getting to Ras al-Khaimah was a similar trek. It was an, a day of hours and hours of driving on the beach all the way up to Ras al-Khaimah. In time, of course, the dunes were conquered. The low spots were filled in. The dunes were leveled and paved. Highways and bridges were built that have made it possible for us to get to all those places without having to have duning skills or a four-wheel drive. Highway building makes it easy for us to get to where we want to go. John the Baptist was a highway builder of sorts. When asked about himself, he quoted Isaiah 40 verse 3. He said he was a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then two verses onward from that, in verse 3 of chapter 40, it says, excuse me, verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Preparing for and revealing the Lord, that sums up John's calling. And we see just that in our passage today. Last week in the opening 18 verses of John's gospel, we were introduced to the Word who was there in the beginning of time, before creation. He was with God and He was God. He was the light and the life of men. He was coming into a dark world which did not know Him even though He had created it. He came to His own people and yet they rejected Him. Yet to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Jesus Christ came into the world full of grace and truth. The first way that men and women 
in Jesus' day began to learn who he was, was through the witness of John the Baptist. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 34. Follow along with me as I read. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel." And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, give us soft, teachable hearts to see Jesus for who He really is. We know that we couldn't know Him and receive Him if it weren't for Your gracious work of preparing us to see and believe in Jesus, the Lamb of God, who can take away our sin and even the sins of the whole world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Apostle John wrote verses 19 through 34 so that we would believe John's testimony, which prepares for and reveals Jesus. He wanted us to believe John's testimony, which prepares for and reveals Jesus. And so the first of two points this afternoon is the Lord's way prepared. The Lord's way prepared. We see that in verses 19 through 28. John the Baptist and Jesus were born into a culture and a Jewish faith that was characterized by the expectation that God's promises of salvation and rescue could be fulfilled at any moment. The religious leaders knew that the Scripture pointed to God's salvation sometime in the future, and so they were always watching and waiting for when it might happen. 
The Scriptures weren't clear, though. They used metaphors and vague language when they spoke of God's future rescue of His people. But one thing was clear. When it happened, there would be important men or an important man who would appear when God's promises began to be fulfilled. And so when John the Baptist began his ministry in the wilderness east of Jerusalem and east of the Jordan River, and huge crowds were thronging to see him, everyone wondered whether he might be one of those expected men sent from God to signal the beginning of God's promised rescue of His people. And so the verse, first verse, verse 19, says that the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John about his identity. Now, John's gospel will oftentimes refer to a group simply called the Jews. It means different things in different places, but most often it refers to the Jewish leaders and their followers, most of whom were congregating in Jerusalem, who were mainly opposed to Jesus. They became His enemies. Now, these interrogators started with one general question, and they followed it with three specific questions for John the Baptist. Who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Let's talk about each one of those. Christ means anointed one, which was the man who was expected to be sent from God, a, a descendant of King David, who would come and he would take the throne. He would be a king. He would throw off Israel's oppressors and he would usher in a new golden era for Israel. He would be a fulfillment of lots of promises in the Old Testament, probably 2 Samuel chapter 7 being the most obvious place where God promises that this son of David, who would also be a son of God, would be given an everlasting throne. Now, Elijah, Elijah was the Old Testament prophet who was oftentimes on the run from King Ahab in the same Jordan Valley wilderness where John was baptizing. And John the Baptist wore clothes that were like Elijah's clothes. We're told that in some of the other Gospels. The prophet Elijah, interestingly enough, was taken up into heaven. He didn't die. The last two verses in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, promise that the Lord would send Elijah to his people before the day of the Lord. And so the religious leaders were waiting for Elijah as well. The prophet is a reference to someone that Moses prophesied will be sent from God and whom all the people must listen to just as they listened to Moses' voice. And you can read about this prophet that Moses foretells. It's mentioned in Deuteronomy 18 in verses 15 through 18. But essentially, to all these questions, John said, I'm none of those people. I'm none of them. Now, in the other Gospels, I do want to point out that Jesus is recorded as saying that John the Baptist was Elijah. And rather than take up 
kind of helping to figure out that seeming inconsistency between John's testimony and Jesus' testimony about him. And I do think there's wonderful, fine explanations about how that could be true. I'm not going to explain that this afternoon. But what John did say positively about his identity is there in verse 23. The priests and the Levites press him for an answer about his identity, and they say, look, we need an, to give an answer to those who sent us. And he says in verse 23, look there with me, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And of course, John is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And when we look at Isaiah 40 and onward in the book of Isaiah, we see that these are prophetic words telling about a future time when God will bring His people out of exile in the east where they had been taken captive, and He's going to lead them back to the promised land. Here's what the verses say in Isaiah beginning with verse 3. Glory read that to us earlier, but I, I want to read it to you one more time, just three verses. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together." The voice that was crying in the wilderness was calling for valleys to be filled in, mountains to be knocked down so that people could travel back easily and without trouble, led by the Lord Himself. But with the coming of Jesus and John's announcement that He's fulfilling these verses, these verses take on some new meaning. The Lord is not going to be figuratively leading His people out of Israel. He's going to be literally leading His people out of spiritual exile. And in Jesus, the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see Him, literally. In fact, in the prologue, in verses 1 through 18, John has told us, we have seen His glory the glory of the Son of the Father. John's ministry is one of preparation for someone coming after himself. His his ministry really isn't about himself. It's about someone greater. And John presses that point home when they ask him why he's baptizing people in verse 25. Now, baptism really isn't mentioned in the Old Testament, interestingly enough. Logically, baptism means to be immersed in water. It means immersion. That would symbolize being cleansed or purified. Water baptism began in the time between the last Old Testament book and Jesus' days, which lasted about 400 years, and it was primarily almost exclusively for Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. Jews didn't think they needed to be cleansed. They were the people of God already. That's the way they thought of themselves. Now, 
John doesn't really answer their question again. He points them to an unknown someone that they don't know yet. In fact, it's almost as if John is saying, I don't want to talk about water baptism with you all. I want to talk to you about the person who's coming after me. That person is so great that John says he's not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. In Israelite culture, a student of a master was expected to, to do anything for their teacher except untie and take the sandals off of their dusty, dirty feet. That was too low, too far for a student to go. John's way of preparing was to make much of the special one who was coming after him, someone who could go even by the title Lord, as we read in Isaiah 40. Before we consider what we can learn from John's example, I want to point out the other examples in the passage that we want to avoid, and that is of John's interrogators. They came with questions about John's identity and what his ministry was all about, but in the end, they weren't really open to hear what John had to say. When he did quote Scripture to explain who he was, they didn't seem interested to follow it up with deeper questions, like, what do you mean, quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3, John? Tell us more about that. Tell us more about this one who's supposed to come after you. No, what they really wanted was just answers so that they could take them back to their bosses in Jerusalem. They lack a true openness to God and His Word. Be careful that the questions that you come to God's Word with are questions that reflect an attitude of openness to hear real answers from God in His Word, not just things that you want to learn about Jesus. Do you want to know more about the Lord so that you can grow in reverent worship of Him and more faithful obedience to Him? That's the way to approach His Word. Or is it simply that you want to satisfy a desire to know more Bible or to feel more confident in your salvation because you know more than the next person? That kind of hard attitude can never receive spiritual instruction from the Lord that results in transformation and greater sanctification. We won't become more like Jesus with hearts like that. If you're not a Christian, these men are a warning to you as well. I hope you feel welcomed in our services, any of our gatherings, you're welcome in. Are you seeking answers about Jesus, who He really was and why He came? And what if you hear the answers to your questions? What will you do with those answers? Will you respond with an appropriate life decision? Will it make a difference? Ultimately, will you become a Christian? Ask yourself that. If you can't answer yes, I might do that if I'm convinced, then you're simply like these religious leaders 
looking to take answers back to their boss. John, on the other hand, is a model of a humble witness. And when asked, who are you, he answered about himself in relationship to the Lord. He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. If someone asks you the question, who are you, essentially, or why are you doing what you're doing in life, do you see yourself being able to answer first and foremost that you're a servant of the Lord? Someone who finds their purpose and their identity primarily in relationship with Christ and His purposes? He's the one who made us. He's the one who made the world we live in. He's the one who gave us the abilities that we have and who sustains us day in and day out. Surely our identity and our purpose in life should flow from who we are in relationship to Him. We're the sheep of His pasture. We're the children in His family. We are servants to the Master if we're Christians. What's particularly striking about John is that despite being barraged with questions about himself, he only points toward Christ, the greater one who was among them that they didn't know yet. And that's one of the key characteristics of a faithful witness to Jesus. They're not interested in talking about themselves. They want to talk about Him. Pride can keep us talking about ourselves rather than Jesus. And sometimes we just keep silent. We don't necessarily talk about ourselves, but we're not willing to speak up at all. If we keep quiet when we could speak about Jesus, that's oftentimes because of fear. Fear of being rejected or fear of being laughed at or even persecuted for some of us in some situations. Either way, whether it's pride or whether it's fear, we'll miss the mark of being a faithful, bold, humble witness for Christ, which describes John. As I meditated on this passage, I began thinking back to my days as a campus minister. I served as a campus minister for over 25 years, about 14 of them here in Dubai. Almost every day, there was an opportunity for me to speak about Jesus to someone who wasn't a Christian. Oh, those were, those were rich, rich days of evangelism. I miss, I miss that a lot. To speak to those who don't know Christ about Christ is one of the greatest privileges that we as Christians have. Do you know the thrill of faithfully speaking about Jesus who isn't following Jesus? Do you know that thrill? Oh, brothers and sisters, it can be scary. You can be wondering whether or not I'm saying the right things about Christ, but if you're doing that, if you're praying for those opportunities and seizing them when they come along, oh, it is a thrill. And if you've never had the opportunity to see 
some of your witness for Christ contribute to someone repenting and trusting in Christ, oh, there is nothing like it. Once you experience it, you want it again and again and again. When was the last time that you simply asked a non-Christian friend a question about their view of Jesus? When you actually spoke His name to a non-Christian? Do this. Think of two people who are not Christians who are in your life right now. I, I don't mean someone who's thousands of kilometers away. I mean someone that you rub shoulders with week in and week out. Now pray for them this week, to those, those two people. Pray for them to come to Christ. Pray for opportunities to speak to them. And look for those opportunities to come about, to ask them what they think about Jesus. Maybe it'll start with asking them about their own faith background and then shifting to asking them about Christianity. John the Baptist prepared the way of the Lord through his ministry of baptism and his selfless announcing that there was someone greater who was coming after him. And when Jesus came near, when the time was right, John revealed him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The first point this afternoon was the Lord's way prepared, and the second point is the Lamb of God revealed. The Lamb of God revealed. We see that in verses 29 through 34. It was the very next day, and Jesus came walking toward John, and John made this profound announcement in verse 29. Look there again with me. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Titles are important, and the gospel of John is full of titles for Jesus, and this is one of them. If you've read any of the local newspapers about news here in the UAE or in Dubai, specifically, you've seen the initials HRH. They stand for His Royal Highness, Sheikh Mohammed, etc., etc. That's a title, a title meant to convey something important about Him, and that is exactly what we see in this title for Jesus, Lamb of God. And this title is, of course, so familiar to us as Christians, it's so familiar that it's hard to see at first that it probably would not have made the same kind of sense to His hearers as it makes to us. There's no mention of a specific Lamb of God in the Old Testament, certainly not that takes away the sin of the world. But we can look back and see the importance of lambs in the Old Testament and know that it must have something to do with sacrifice and atonement. John might have been thinking of the lamb that Abraham spoke of when he was taking his son Isaac to sacrifice him on the mountain in obedience to God. We see that in Genesis 22 when his son Isaac asked him, Father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And of course, we know that God did. 
And he could have been thinking of the Passover lamb first commanded to be sacrificed in Exodus chapter 12. And in the Exodus, each family was commanded to brush the blood of the sacrificed animal over the door to the house so that the family would be protected from the angel of the Lord passing judgment on the land. He could have been thinking of the Day of Atonement, what Jews call Yom Kippur. On that day, a lamb would be sacrificed for the sins of the whole nation of Israel, and its blood would be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place in the temple. But perhaps, perhaps since John had his calling revealed in the words of Isaiah, the prophet, this title for Jesus would have come from Isaiah 53, where the ser suffering servant of the Lord is described, where it says in verses 6 through 7, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. John the Apostle doesn't develop this idea of an atoning sacrificial lamb much more in his gospel. And perhaps John didn't even know the full extent of what this title meant about Jesus. We can know for sure that God revealed it to him. But we know when we read the rest of John that multiple people in John's gospel say things that they don't seem to fully understand and yet which are profoundly prophetic about Christ and His work. Regardless of how much John the Baptist understood his own declared title for Jesus, it describes what's at the heart of the gospel. Jesus came into the world to take away the sin of the world. Sin is our greatest enemy that Christ came to defeat. Every one of us has disobeyed the Lord who made us. We've gone our own way in big ways and in little ways. We've envied, we've lied, we've coveted, we've lusted. And I could go on and on and on for every single one of us. Once, once would be enough to condemn us. But we've sinned over and over and over again. And Jesus will say later in John, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Brothers and sisters, that described us before we trusted in Christ. Our sin had enslaved us. Sin enslaves people. And sin condemns us. And so we needed to have our sins atoned for, covered over, washed away. But we can't do that for ourselves. The so-called good deeds of people do not remove their guilt and condemnation before God. Good deeds don't cancel out bad deeds, not even for Christians. But Christ can. Christ cancels out sin. Christ is the perfect lamb whose blood was shed and his body broken to pay the penalty for our sin. 
to all who trust in His sacrifice for sin, He does away with it and gives the right to become children of God. Jesus didn't come into the world first and foremost to show us how to live a good life. He didn't come so that we could have inspirational quotes on the calendars in our kitchens so that we could glance out of them and walk out the door to go to work and hope to be a better person. He came to take our sin away. Think of the problems that you're facing in your life right now. And I know lots of you are facing really big problems, very difficult situations, frightening, seemingly insurmountable. But I want to remind you that your sin problem was far, far greater than any of those problems that you're facing right now. Is the fact that Jesus came to take away the sin of the world, even your sin, at the heart of the gospel that you understand? If you don't think you have sin or you don't think that your sin is that big of a problem, you don't think that you need Jesus. It says even here as well that this Lamb of God came to take away the sin of the whole world. First, there was a lamb for each person. Abraham needed a lamb, one lamb for his son. And in Exodus, there was a lamb for a whole family. Eventually, a lamb would be sacrificed on the Day of Atonement for a whole nation. But here, here is the lamb that takes away the sin of the whole world. But you must recognize who He is and receive Him. Believe in His name. Won't you do that if you haven't yet? In verse 26, John had told them that there was someone who was coming who was greater. Now, the very next day, John is revealing him. He's saying, this is him. John even admits that he didn't know him. Of course, John knew Jesus. They were cousins. But he didn't know that he was the Christ, the anointed one, the Lamb of God, the Son of God. He explains in verses 31 through 33 that it was when he had baptized Jesus, evidently sometime prior to this, that he had come to realize that Jesus was the Christ. God the Father had told him, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 26 it had foretold a time when the Lord would put His Spirit in His people, enabling them to be cleansed from their sin and empowered to live in obedience to Him, something they didn't have before that. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
And Isaiah 42, 1 promises, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. The spirit came to certify Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one. And one day Christ would send the spirit to baptize his church. And that didn't happen until the day of Pentecost, recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 2. When someone truly repents and believes in Christ and His work on the cross, Jesus sends His Spirit to live in that person. All true Christians have the Spirit in them the moment they repent and believe. That's what it means to be baptized in the Spirit. That Spirit applies the saving work of the Lamb of God to that person and even more The Spirit begins to transform us and enable us to increasingly break free from the power of sin in our lives. Prior to that, the sin has dominion in our lives. We're slaves. But when the Spirit comes, when the Spirit comes, we are set free. There's a famous hymn titled, Rock of Ages, We don't sing it, maybe we should. One of the lines in that hymn refers to this two-part work of Christ through the Spirit. It says, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me of its guilt and power. Guilt and power. Justification and sanctification. If you've repented of your sin and you've trusted in Christ, are you taking advantage of the work of the Spirit in you to break the power of indwelling sin? Brothers and sisters, this is a lifelong battle. It's a lifelong battle. In fact, we mention it in our statement of faith in our article on sanctification. We say that the Spirit works in us through the continual use of the spiritual disciplines, including, and we list some of them, Things like Christian fellowship where sin is confessed and fought together, gathering together with the saints regularly to hear God's Word preached and to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, praying and reading the Word of God, speaking the Word of God to one another. These are the kinds of things that we must take active participation in cooperation with the Holy Spirit in order to see sin broken in our lives. Is there sin that you continue to fall into? I know there is in my life. I have to keep fighting. You have to keep fighting. Don't give up. Don't ignore it. Bring it to the Lord. Ask for help from the Spirit which lives in you. Decide what righteous thoughts or actions or words would the Lord replace that sin with in your life? What would He have you think or do or say instead when those situations come? And take whatever steps of action He guides you to. The Spirit's in you. If you've trusted in Christ, you've been baptized in this Spirit. 
just as John began this section with a title for Jesus, he also ends with a title for Jesus. He says, this is the Son of God. The author John's gospel will gradually unfold for us what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is going to talk a lot more about that, so stick around. But these titles and an understanding of John's calling and who Jesus really was came because John was humble before the Lord. He listened and obeyed with boldness. His ministry and testimony prepared Israel and even us, of course, to be ready for Jesus and to know and believe in the Son of God. John had a special role in history, but he's also a model for us. If we humbly trust in Christ and listen to the Lord as He speaks to us through His Word, we can be used by God to prepare the way for Jesus for those who are around us. As we live lives as well, announcing who Jesus is to them. Jesus is the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, even your sin, if you would but trust in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we praise You for sending Your Son into the world. We praise You that in Him was light and that He had the life which You gave to men. We praise You for all of us who have repented and trusted in Him. We are experiencing life in Him. Oh, Lord, help us to experience it all the more, all the more deeply, Lord. In Christ we pray. Amen. Let's sing to one another about the Lamb who takes away.